All right, everybody. Hey, we are here today with Jonathan Dodson, who has written a book called um, Our Good Crisis, which seems very aptly titled these days. Um, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. And so, Jonathan, hello. Great to see you. Where, where are you located right now? I'm in Austin, Texas, in the corner of our bedroom in my makeshift office, and I'm Perfect. pleased to be with you. How Now, I'm not – we're recording this in the middle of the corona lockdown. Now, is, is, is Texas really its own country? Are there are there entirely different rules going on down there for like oh, us abs- Ohioans? Oh, absolutely! And not only is Texas its own country, but Austin is its own state. That's true. That's how we <laughs> that's how we do things out here. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Okay. There's well. actually there's actually a feud, uh, ongoing feud between our mayor and uh, the governor of Texas between Adler and Abbott. They constantly pass different policies regarding social issues. So, Perfect. and the coronavirus is no exception. Perfect. So, have you been? <laughs> have you been? Have you been sheltering in place? I, I have been sheltering in place, indeed. Yeah. Um, okay. I try to get out for a walk every morning, but uh, we've been locked down for uh, a couple months. You know, we've got yeah. three kids, and so we we escaped for a, a week out into the country. And got an Airbnb. Uh, there was a pool, and the kids were able to just kind of let loose. And I think that gave everybody some sanity. Oh, that's we're in smart. a we're in a small town home that kind of goes vertical, so it was good to get out in the country and have some space. And yeah, uh, but yeah, we've been we've been uh, locked down like everybody else. Yeah, what, what's your new quarantine hobby? Do you have one? <laughs> With actually, I, I did I did take up running again. Nice. I stopped about fifteen years ago, and now every other day I run about two miles. And one neat thing is that I'm running with my teenage daughter, which has been a real joy just to kind of connect with her, bond with her, got her some new running shoes. And nice. it's been fun just to connect. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Jonathan, my new quarantine um, hobby is not running. And so that has been. I don't know been, if we can call that new. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. So, so I just want to, I just want to say on behalf of us, I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> um uh, <laughs> so so um so where are you at what are you doing you you pastor a church mm-hmm. correct yep. t- tell us about that we moved here uh 15 years ago to plant city life church it's a uh, downtown austin and we kind of moved here with a kind of question where is the city broken and what would it look like for the gospel to address the brokenness of the city spiritually, socially, and culturally? So City Life exists to renew cities socially, spiritually, and culturally with the gospel of Jesus. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a mixed bag like any ministry. You know, there's uh, ups and downs, peaks mm-hmm. and valleys. Mm-hmm. But it's a profound privilege to be here. We love this city. We love the particular challenges uh, to ministry that, that this city brings as a kind of ca- countercultural uh, progressive, creative city. Uh, we love the the beauty of Austin. Uh, as I look out my window and look at live oaks and juniper ash trees. That's and, fine. Stop. You know, we don't care. <laughs> I'm in Ohio. Um, <laughs> is is that where Chip and Joanna Gaines live? Is Austin, or is that a different city? Because that's all. No, they live in I, Waco. Uh, they live in Waco. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the only Whack. reason I'm asking is this this is all I know about Texas is that it is the home of Chip and Joanna Gaines. Hmm. And, well, the, and, and the Cowboys. I know those that's things. That's disappointing. That that's is disappointing. disappointing. <laughs> 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 all right. Jonathan, let's talk about this book. All right. What um the 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 book is called Overcoming, excuse me, our our good crisis overcoming moral chaos with the beatitudes. So let's talk beatitudes for a second. Um, what are the Beatitudes? Where do we find them? How does Jesus use them? Sort of if, if somebody was uninitiated to the Bible, um, you know, a lot of us will know what they're in reference to, but what are Beatitudes? Yeah. Well, Beatitude uh, Beatitude comes from a Latin word, Beatitudo, which means blessing. And they're kind of these punchy moral statements that prefaced uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, mm-hmm. the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. That sermon appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It also appears in the Gospel of Luke as the Sermon on the Plain. 
he probably gave it more than twice, and those are two different accounts. Mm-hmm. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we have a more extended sermon, and uh, the, uh, the Beatitudes are uh, extended also. So um, <clears throat> they are really Jesus' kind of coherent, fruitful, moral vision for humanity. Um, and they begin with, with each one with the word blessing or blessed. How do you, that can mean flourishing, that can mean peaceful, content, joyful, all of those words kind of fit into that word, Mm. which makes it a wonderful word, and it makes it a word that resonates with every human. How do I live a peaceful, joyful, content life of flourishing? And of course, Jesus isn't naive. There is a promise of blessing even in the midst of mourning and persecution in these Beatitudes. So it's a very rich uh, moral spiritual vision for the flourishing of humanity before Jesus gets into his full-blown Sermon on the Mount. Great answer. Are they, are, are, is Jesus commending things like mourning and persecution and poverty of spirit, or is he um, pronouncing blessing over groups that wouldn't have been traditionally considered to be blessed? Yeah, it does raise interesting questions. So you have different people interpreting the Beatitudes differently, especially over church history. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is Mm -hmm. that a command to be poor in spirit? Is it, oh, if you find yourself poor in spirit, hey, guess what? The kingdom of heaven is coming. Mm -hmm. Um, There's kind of, a, I think, an an intentional tension in each Beatitude, uh, which you wouldn't, uh, you would be surprised with Jesus as kind of a master teacher. So you have a moral imperative kind of built into that to be poor in spirit. Uh, and at the same time, you have a heavenly promise. So uh, poor in spirit, uh, we, we could just take that one if you want. Um, yeah, yeah. The poor in spirit has been interpreted two different ways. It's been interpreted literally because in the gospel of Luke, it's best of the poor, no in spirit mm. phrase. Yeah, yeah. And so people have argued for a, uh, particular attention to the poor, that this is restricted to the mm. economically impoverished. Mm. And so this beatitude is for them. Of course, in Matthew, Jesus adds the in-spirit phrase. Mm. So it it has to do with more than kind of circumstantial poverty. It has to do with spiritual poverty. And so I think what he's trying to do is say, um, if you are to be a person who is blessed and to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, then you need to be a person who is in touch with the circumstantially poor, but also to be someone who is spiritually poor. Uh, a simple way would be you need to be a generous and humble person. Mm-hmm. Uh, a generous and humble people experience blessing, contentment, joy that transcends their circumstances. And um, I, I found that to be true in people that have influenced my life. I think of uh, Tom and Julie Steller, 1604 Elliott, big yellow three-story house in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And they lived on a block full of Somalians. We moved in on the first floor. They lived on the second and third floor. There were two single guys in the basement. I mean, they pushed as many people as they could into that house. And Tom and Julie uh, loved their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, if there was a conflict in the neighborhood, people came to their house. If people needed to borrow a car, people looked to them and they would, they would, just without a moment's uh, kind of, you know, notice, they were ready to give what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they gave way beyond their means. They chose to live simply and to be generous to those around them in prayer, in finances, uh, in time. And, uh, and, 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 and also, both of them are uh, quite successful, I guess you could say, in terms of, uh, of ministry. Tom founded a theological school. Uh, Julie founded a, a home goods company where she hired um, down-and-out women to make home goods, uh, mm. to knit things, and then kind of give them work and meaning. Mm. And, of course, they would never tell you this. They would never say, hey, I'm the founder of this or I'm the founder of that. They're just humble, generous people. Right. And so that's a little picture yeah. of the poor in spirit, you know. Right. And, uh, and they experience the, the, the kingdom of heaven, and they bring the kingdom of heaven in being poor in spirit. Mm. And so you juxtapose these, um, these uh, visions of Jesus against 
almost call it, you know, what, what would be called American Beatitudes. Where, where do Americans <clears throat> think we find blessing? And so um, what do you contrast poor in spirit with? What do you see yeah. Americans? If, if Americans were writing a creed on, you know, blessing, what it means to be blessed apart from the kingdom, where, where would you locate the opposite of poverty of spirit? Yeah, well, um, I, I uh, with that particular one, I'd say we wouldn't say blessed are the proud because we're we're too alert to the uh, uh, the the moral dangers of of pride, you know. But uh, blessed are the uh, blessed is the individual. Mm. Uh, blessed is uh, the language I use in here is the big me. So, what does it mean to be a poor in spirit in the age of the big me? Because in the age of the big me, this is a phrase I borrowed from uh, David Brooks in his book on character, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, in the age of the big me, you have kind of two versions of that. You have uh, a activist me. Hey, look at the causes I'm part of. Look at the justice I'm pursuing. Look at the um, things that I'm doing for the world. And then you have the kind of uh, the inner me. Um, I might, might not be into causes, but I... Uh, I'm, look how spiritual I am, look at the, the spiritual disciplines that I follow, or it may even be a therapeutic me. Uh, I, you know, I'm so in touch with my hurts, my pains, uh, you know, this kind of retreat into the self. But both of them are big. One is really kind of a more shriveled me, but it's still big. And then one is a big me, but it's a, it's a, a more visible kind of, hey, look at me. And both are operating not on humility, but on pride. The, the, the activist me wants kind of applause for the things that they accomplish. Mm. And the uh, shriveled therapeutic me uh, wants to be uh, coddled or understood or approved of. But in both instances, the self is what is most important, not um, something greater than the self. And so that's hard. That's, it's hard to be humble when that's the kind of culture that you swim in. And when people around you are kind of encouraging that, that big me. Um, <clears throat> and so it's very difficult to cultivate kind of poverty of spirit. In fact, it's impossible mm. unless you have something greater than yourself to adore. And um, that's, the, that's the wonder and the beauty of, of God himself in this uh, particular beatitude is that poverty of spirit doesn't come from my white knuckling and saying, I'm going to stop thinking about myself. Mm. But it comes by looking at something that's truly great, way greater than ourselves. And I think of my trips to uh, the Atlantic Ocean whale watching as I see a massive whale crest the Atlantic and, uh, you know, water sprays everywhere. And I'm just stunned at how small I am. Mm. And at the same time, looking out of that vast ocean, I'm thrilled at the same time, you know, or you might have a similar experience looking at the Rocky Mountains. You step out, you see the snow-capped peaks, you see the uh, the beauty and the grandeur of these rugged 16,000-foot uh, mountains. You're humbled. Uh, your breath's taken away. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're thrilled. Well, that's what happens when we get close to something greater than us and more gracious than us in the person of, of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's a bit of the secular kind of beatitude. It's, 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 a, it's a big me. Um, and Jesus is seeking a, a little me in the shadow of his greatness and grace. Yeah, can I, I think that's really, really wise, and I like how you juxtapose that. I have a question for you, and um, this I kept thinking of this when I was reading that chapter in your book. I don't always know where to put um, the like self-help, hustle, motivational culture of things, mm -hmm. and we see that, I like we see a lot of Christian authors now writing books in that realm. Um, and I especially see a lot of women Christian authors doing it. Um, I have mixed emotions on it, right? Because I, I think that um, some parts of it can be healing in terms of being confident, right? Uh, especially women that have um, constantly been told opposite. So some of it I can see very healing. Um, I can also see it good that when we can, like, so to speak, put our oxygen masks on ourselves, then we can help others. So I see parts of it that are very fruitful and good. But mm -hmm. then something sometimes rubs me the wrong way. 
And I can't mm-hmm. always quite quite pinpoint it. Some of it seems a little prosperity gospel at times. Um, but I just didn't mm-hmm. know, what are your thoughts on that? Like when we're talking about the big me and poor in spirit, because it would be super easy to say, like I thought of that when you said about the, the therapeutic me. It would be very mm-hmm. easy to make that an idol. I don't know. What, what have mm-hmm. you sort of come across even in your church or while you were writing this and how culture affects that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very fair point. I think there are a lot of very helpful insights from uh, people like Brene Brown, mm-hmm. you know, addressing kind of shame, being brave, you know, psychologists, sociologists, uh, some popular writers grabbing these ideas. There's, you know, there's all truth is God's truth, you know, so if it's true, let's celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the question becomes, is that that particular truth in its proper place? So I think when you take a psychological insight that validates some aspect of who you are or what your experience has been, that that's great. Um, but it, it in validating that experience or that emotion, um, the danger is that that becomes your defining reality. That that you you seek um, to validate yourself based on uh, a hurt or experience or a pain. And that becomes um, you either settle into the victim identity or you overextend and, and try to become a victor or a conqueror of that. And that particular truth that has been so helpful dislodges uh, our identity in Christ. That's the danger. Mm-hmm. The benefit, obviously, is to really address those things and help us step out into the light, to be brave, to be honest, to be transparent. But when we kind of get stuck there in that victim mode, or when we overreach and try to kind of uh, define ourselves mm-hmm. by escaping that particular experience or pain, it, it, it's, it is easy to overreach beyond Christ or underreach and not mm-hmm. invite Christ in it. So, so you become a kind of self-redeemer. Yeah, that makes um, sense. You know, so I think, I think there's great benefit uh, but it needs to find that truth needs to find its proper place under the way, the truth and the life, yeah. Jesus himself, yeah. you know, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. One of the things you do in a different chapter, speaking of pride is you talk about three different kinds of pride, mm-hmm. even though we, we're kind of, as you say, aware of the dangers and pitfalls of pride, it's still pretty insidious. And that was, <laughs> that was a part of the, that was a part of the book I was interested in just, would you go into those three forms? I know it's dealing with a different beatitude, but it, it's still very much yeah. part of the, I, I think it's an extension of the big me yeah, way absolutely. of living life. Yeah. Well, the, the poor in spirit is kind of a vertically, vertically conceived humility. You know, it, it's produced by encountering a great and gracious God. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That meekness, I, I think, is more of a kind of, horizontally or socially experienced humility. And we all know those kinds of people, you know, when you get around a humble person, um, you enjoy it because they ask you a lot of questions. They show interest in your life, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're refreshing to be around. The challenge, as you point out, is to actually be that kind of person. Right, right, right. Um, You know, I was just meeting with some guys online this morning. We were were confessing our our own pride and – and, and encouraging one another to, to draw near to God and to, to pursue humility. So um, this meekness um, in that chapter, yeah, I talk about three obstacles. There's strong pride, which is uh, look at me, uh, applause. I'm so good at this thing or this attribute that I have. Uh, there's weak pride. Um, it's not applause, it's approval. Um, poor me, I'm insignificant, I haven't achieved what I want to achieve, and uh, it, yet it still is self-focused. And then there's the, the, the middle pride, which is, um, it is somewhere in between, you know, it's kind of, um, there are catchphrases in our society for, for middle pride, like, um, you do you, or that's my truth, or, um, you know, uh, th- those kinds of things that uh, don't appear to be proud, but are still radically self-centered. Um, and so um, there are times in which that phrase is used positively. For instance, in the Me Too movement, when 
people have actually been assaulted and they own their truth. That is very important to do and to, to be able to come out into the light with it. Um, but that's because what they're talking about is actually true. Mm. There's another version of the middle pride that says, um, I don't really care about reality uh, and how God defines it, which is how I flourish. I'm going to own my own truth. I'm going to create my own morality. I'm going to form my own sexuality. And that's that middle pride of saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks. What matters most is what I feel. And so uh, that's that middle. It's in between the two. And, and what happens with the middle pride is feelings dictate what's true instead of truth dictating our feelings. So those are the three types that you were kind of referencing there in that mm -hmm, chapter. Mm -hmm. And um, those, of course, you know, are helpful for us to kind of locate where we are so that we can bring that in confession to God and, and find a, a greater source of meaning and worth in his presence. Yeah. And, and the trick, as you say, is that there are parts of each of those three that are good and God-honoring. To, to say, I mean, the opposite of, of pride isn't false humility, right? It's not pretending I'm not something when I mm -hmm. actually am something, right? Mm -hmm. um, the middle pride's tricky because, mm -hmm. yes, on the one hand, it can be a um, just a, a, another... Uh, another expression of, hey, just follow your dreams. And it doesn't matter. You know, it's why all those people, horrible singers sign, sign up for American Idol every year. Right? I mean, that's middle pride. Am I right, Stafford? Amen. <laughs> right? I'm going to sign up and next and, year. And they're shocked. They're shocked when they're horrific. They're shocked that they're not loved. Right? That's, that's a picture of middle pride, correct? Yeah. yeah. I've created an alternative reality. Yes. Uh, and when that gets punctured, you know, but, but they're also, but I, you know, with Bonnie, I can, I can see parts of it that are still good and helpful. So mm -hmm. it's, man, it's so tough to sift and sort all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, moving on to another, um, another, and again, some of these, so, so what you do, um, is you, you set up over, you know, the, the, the biblical, the Jesus oriented vision against the kind of American via, uh, vision of blessing. And one of the things that's super um, controversial is peacemaking mm -hmm. in an age of outrage. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. I mean, holy moly. So first of all, I'm outraged at that, at that title to make a dumb joke, <laughs> but um, what let's talk about peacemaking and outrage. So we've, we've just mm -hmm. seen a video of a um, an African American man jogging in a white neighborhood, and uh, you know, without knowing all the facts, the video is just unbelievably horrific, mm -hmm. and people are rightly outraged. So, mm -hmm. what's what's the what's good outrage? What's bad outrage? And where does peacemaking come in from a Christian point of view? Yeah. Well, it it is awful what we've seen and. There are times in which outrage is uh, the most immediate uh, response, the most authentic response. Mm. Yeah. Um, there, there is outrage in the Psalms. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the Son of God himself. So outrage generally has kind of a negative connotation, but there are times in which it is positive and appropriate. I don't think you want to stay there, but there are times when it just, it, it, it's, it is appropriate. Mm. Um, if you stay there, you'll become embittered and angry and despairing, you know, so while being true to your experience and your emotions and God doesn't judge us for our emotions, you know, he, he has experienced the full gamut of human emotion as, uh, as, as Jesus walked the earth. Um, we also don't want to be defined completely by our emotions. So mm. <clears throat> um, one of the stories I tell in this chapter is the story of Christine Sacco. Um, she was on her way to Africa. She got on, uh, she was a communications mm. VP for a company. 
she got before she got onto a plane to Africa, she tweeted out, you know, headed to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Mm-hmm. And then she this. got on the plane. Yeah, she got on the plane, and then uh, she didn't have any access to the internet. Well, in the meantime, social media erupted, and there was a hashtag created: "Has Justine landed yet?" And so people were, you know, calling for her to be fired, and you know, justly excoriating her racist comments. Uh, you know, it turns out she had a, a sordid history on social media. Anyway, she lands, and she lands to being fired from her position. Mm-hmm. And that's another indication of outrage accomplishing good, um, of being appropriate. However, you know, often outrage does more damage than good. Mm-hmm. And what also was said was, we hope Christine gets raped. Uh, we hope that she gets murdered. I mean, there was just a whole slew of things that were disproportionate to what she had said. And in fact, evil. So <clears throat> outrage alone um, is not uh, a way into peace, uh, to flourishing. And yet at, at times it is an appropriate response to the things that we experience. So <clears throat> as I think about Jesus' command, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, um, for they shall be called sons of God. How is it that we can genuinely and authentically engage things in justices that provoke outrage and at the same time move towards peace. It depends on what you define peace as. If it's just kind of laying down your arms, that's kind of a cheap peace. Yeah. You know, the peace that Jesus has in mind is a full-bodied peace. It's a peace not just of, hey, let's stop fighting, but um, let's experience reconciliation not just reconciliation, but healing and mending, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mending of those deep wounds and mending of those broken relationships and mending of those injustices. And one day God will mend it all mm-hmm. <laughs> and we will be in a new creation where righteousness and justice dwell. That's where it lives. The zip code of justice will be the new creation. Until that day, Christians have a unique ability and calling to bring the future into the present, Mm. to bring the shalom of God into our own zip codes. And that peace is so full orbed that it enables us to do this. Now, as I thought about people who do this in relationships with social issues, justice issues, I had a hard time finding people who I thought, man, that's a great peacemaker. I think a lot of us are pushed to the extremes, outrage or fragility, strong pride, weak pride. And it's hard to find people who are so centered in what Jesus says, being a son or a daughter of God, that they can walk into a conflict, walk into um, disagreement and broker true reconciliation and peace. And yet that's the wonderful thing is if we really lean into I am adopted and loved fully, completely, without reservation, without um, a smug little look on his face by our Heavenly Father. If we are loved like that so radically, you belong here, he says. I'm not just kind of making room for you. You belong with me. If we, if we settle into that, then when we walk into conflict, we don't have to be right. We don't have to conquer we don't have to um, win over. We can, we can walk in with greater humility and still pursue reconciliation. We also don't have to walk in and go, what if I lose this relationship? Uh, you know, what if I, I don't have this friendship anymore? And be fearful. We have profound love and friendship with Jesus. So there is a, a power in being sons and daughters of God and a love that enables us to walk into conflict and injustice and to pursue this kind of full orbed peace regardless of what what might happen yeah you know yeah mm-hmm. so i like what you said there too about how sometimes outrage is just appropriate um but mm-hmm. i'm wondering if we um the tension of holding outrage and peace together um one thing my therapist always tells me is she's like remember that anger 
is always a secondary emotion. That it, your outrage or your anger rises up because there's actually something else there. There's this mm-hmm. feeling of injustice or cross boundary or you know, there's sort of these other pieces. Um, and so if we can move, like you said, move beyond the outrage, sort of define what it is, that step in and of itself might push us towards peacemaking. If we're just acting out of anger, and we're just kind of flying off the handle, it usually doesn't accomplish much. Um, but if we're able to sort of take a step back and uh, look at why something was unfair, why something was unjust, then we have actual action items. Uh, we were discussing this last night um, with this case, and our first emotion about it is outrage. Um, and then you actually might know her because I think she lived in Austin for a while, Latasha Morrison. You know. I know the name. Yeah, she has a ministry called Be the Bridge. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, um, and it's all about uh, racial reconciliation. And she posted this great video, and she was so, um, you could tell she was emotional, but she was calm, and she was very wise. And it was a this mm. sense of, I have moved past my outrage, and here are tangible mm-hmm. things that we can do. And that was such a picture of peacemaking. So I loved that you spelled that out in such a way of like, hey, yeah. sometimes outrage is necessary. And it can even drive us towards peace. So I like that you Yeah, that. yeah. And it's so great that your family was able to model that yeah. for, for us. You know, we need more models of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so you talk about a good crisis, um, our good crisis. I mean, there is so much that we would consider uh, a crisis these days. So it's timely. And, um, man, we're very, very grateful you would take some time out to to hang with us and uh, where can people find you online? Um, my personal blog is jonathandodson.org. Uh, the books are at all the places where you can buy books <laughs> and I'm um, on Twitter, uh, Jonathan Dodson underscore Dodson. So if any of that's helpful, there you go. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Yep. Appreciate your time today, Jonathan. Sincerely. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Yep. All right. Stay safe. Okay, you too. See you guys. Thanks for your time. Absolutely, buddy. Bye. All right, everybody. That was Jonathan Dodson. And uh, we just want to take a few minutes to reflect on uh, some of his work and and what we heard in the interview. Uh, Tim and Bonnie, what do you guys, what did you hear? What what were you thinking? What was your reaction? Um, I had... A question, but I just didn't ask it. So I'm going to ask it here. Well, boo. And let you, and let you guys uh, on you talk about it and react <laughs> to it. Um, so for me, the sec- the section that stood out to me the most in his book is the section on mourning. Mm. Mm. And and it, I think that obviously right now, you know, there's quite a bit of. Um, I'm just like, I, I don't think that we know how to mourn and lament. And that's been kind of an ongoing theme. I don't know how to do those two things. You know, being someone who struggles with depression and anxiety and that kind of stuff, you're always trying to push those big negative emotions away mm. and you're trying not to deal with it. Uh, I know, I know good <laughs> therapy helps you to do that, but I just mean in general, you're just kind of like, I, I feel terrible. I don't want to feel that way anymore. How do I, how do yeah. I not? Yeah. You look for and, relief, not healing. Yeah. And he writes in here something, uh, let's see, where is it? When disappointment strikes, many of us try to minimize our sorrow. It's not that bad. It's really not that big a deal. I'm just waiting on Mr. Right. Um, There's a better job waiting for you. Just think it could have been worse. And I do think that that is how we tend to deal with a lot of stuff. And even now, it's like we had dinner with friends last night, social distanced outside. And they're just like everyone was asking questions about how are you dealing with this? And do you think that you're uh, paying attention to everything in a really good way that when you reflect back on this, that you will have felt everything or thought through everything. And I'm just like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how to mourn this. I don't know how to <laughs> lament. I don't know how to pray, which we've talked about a lot, right? I, prayer has been an interesting uh, reevaluation and struggle. Like, um, I don't know what to bring to God other than just why mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. how and, and, and what do we do. And so I'm curious what you guys think about this idea of mourning and um, what it looks like, what it means, how important it is 
to do it correctly and in even kind of what correct is mm. in this season. That's my mm. question. It's kind of long, sorry. No. <laughs> Yuri, do you have thoughts? Where's the crickets at? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just, I can go or I can wait. I didn't want to bulldoze. I was, I, I had the same reaction, Bonnie. I was like, I can go or I can wait. <laughs> sure. Um, why don't go. you go? Fo- why don't you go? Okay. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think what often happens is we, and we've talked about this before, but that grieving, we need more permission to grieve. I think we often think that grieving is only if we, lose a loved one or like a relationship ends but there's um lots of little things that we can grieve in a day um and psychologically speaking even those little things we might go through although they might be small and quick the 12 stages of grief right like depending on what it is you're grieving they're 12 i thought so is there less oh no that's I, I thought there were six, but I, I'm, Maybe I'm, I'm saying sure. that wrong. I might no, be no, 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 no. I, I, I thought you knew something that I was going to learn from. So I was like, no. oh, they're 12. What are, what are the new ones? I don't think so. I think I'm getting this confused with AA. <laughs> there's a, <laughs> I think there's... Oh, no, wait. This, some say five, some say seven, and some say 12. <laughs> yeah, just look See, at the two and there's five, There it is. Seven. <laughs> Perfect. All right, I'm sorry to get you off your train of thought. No, you're I was good. I, I was just, just... Meant, I just you're good. No, I so these stages of grief, however many you are feeling in that moment. <laughs> um, but if one thing I've learned it's like it's important to allow that. No matter how insignificant it feels, I think that you have to because what thing what loss could do is like bury itself somewhere and then um, it comes out in like a weird place later. Oh, it comes out, baby. A weird conversation, uh, action. um, Sometimes even, you know, in that book, Body Keeps a Score. Like it shows up Mm -hmm. elsewhere. So, um, I don't know. I I don't think anybody can, has the right to say, you're not allowed to grieve X, Y, and Z. I think if it feels like a loss to you, you should should spend some time figuring out why and and what, what it matters to your life. Yeah, for sure. And and the Bible obviously gives massive amounts of examples. Um the the thing that the thing that's interesting, you know, um is, is that the grief here is mentioned next to blessing. Mm-hmm. And um and you know, the part of what Jonathan's trying to do is to say, listen, there there is an American ideal of blessing. There is a kingdom ideal of blessing. Notice how one of them includes mourning and one of them doesn't, right? So so in Christian circles, we have these incredible resources to teach us to mourn lament. And as you say, Bonnie, those resources are hardly ever tapped, you know, right. for big or small things. But in a covenantal context. Um, lament or mourning is one of the most like faithful things we can do as human beings to the to the things that we encounter in this life. Like lament presupposes God's goodness and evil's evilness, mm. and it cries out. I mean, see, so I see, like, I see outrage, I see lament, I see um, uh, activism as all echoes of image bearing. Right? I mean, there's there's uh, and so, so like to me, I don't know if this is making any sense, but to me, there is a difference between mourning and lamenting. Mm. Lamenting includes mourning, but it's bigger than that, mm. right? Because you can grieve. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Um, but lament is naming that grief in the midst of a covenantal context that assumes the goodness of God, His power, and His wisdom, and saying, "Hey." This is out of place. Why aren't you doing something about this? Yeah. And that that's the part of grieving I didn't know how to do was the 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 specific naming, sitting in, resting in 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 front of God rather than just um uh, you know whatever coping mechanisms I grew up with. Right. Does right. that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so Tim, I don't have any answers for your question. I mean, your question's beautiful and absolutely appropriate. 
But any, any Christian theology that does not tap into the resources of mourning, lamenting, and grieving that are, that are at the core of the biblical writing, right? I mean, this isn't secondary. This isn't like, like it, it's, it, your, your therapist is right. Anger is a secondary emotion. But this stuff, man, this is at the core of what it means to be a follower of God. Um, I, I just think any th- theology that doesn't make room for that isn't even, isn't remotely biblically faithful. Yeah. So whether it's self-help, whether it's prosperity, whether it's just the pop psychology of, you know, it's all going to get better someday, guys. We're all going to be good. Um, right. Man, that's just out of place. Absolutely. Yeah. I lament that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It seems as point. lamenting seems very, very counter American. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And so I think we're in a unique time period. I mean, obviously this virus is affecting the whole world, but just as an American, um, you know, it's just day after day of things being highlighted that are these just atrocities. And, you know, my therapist, Zach De La Roca, <laughs> says uh, anger is a gift. <laughs> That is the lead singer of Rage Against the Machine, just to be clear for our listeners. <laughs> we all get therapy in different ways. That's Some of right. us have to go for a drive and listen to really loud yes. music. Yes. But I think it's an interesting study. And I, I know there's a, I, I should have looked this up before this because uh, I know that we there's a podcast at least maybe 100 episodes ago or so or more uh, where you guys did a good unpacking of lamenting. Um, but man, I think it's a, it would be a powerful, I think it is a, or a, not powerful, but a, um, super prudent, like, just seems like that's the thing that we could really be learning right now and how to, how to apply that to just everything that's happening day after day after day. Yep. Yep. No, that's good. I mean, that could be a whole, that could be a whole deal because I, um, I've really learned a lot from other people who are good at this and it's very transformative. Yeah. And so, you know, I know Bonnie, same for you. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a ton of healing on the other side of lament and mourning and, Mm -hmm. and, but we define the term so badly that uh, the process is almost, you know, uh, submarined before you even start it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I always thought that the goal of grief was to get rid of it. And, I know. Um, you know, and the goal of grief is to welcome it and to find comfort in the midst of it and to um, integrate it with the rest. And I just had no idea, right? I'm a, I'm a Enneagram 7. My job is to avoid negative emotions. <laughs> and, um, and grief counts. <laughs> but, but... So I think that's a phenomenal topic and a great, great question. Um, Bonnie, what did you, what did you think of, or were anything raised for you as you heard Dodson as well? Any, any big questions or thoughts? Um, I really liked his, um, his ability and approach about juxt, like the juxtaposition of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's helpful in sort of understanding and decoding the, the Beatitudes. Um, and it's mm. also, I think, I found his book, I found his book good and I found it refreshing, which I think is hard to do because the Beatitudes, you're always talk like people are always discussing them. Mm. Um, so like when he was talking about um, um, the the outrage, but then also oh, the persecution in age of comfort. Mm. Um, I just thought that was interesting to think about that, especially in light of this, um, mm. of how many people I'm like, cause I, in light of the, the, uh, quarantine, I see like these crazy opposite ends, uh, like the pendulum just swinging. I'm just like watching it unfold on my Facebook. And some people are like shelter in place, wear your masks, do your sanitizer, do this. And they're super passionate. And then, the other side, I hardly ever <laughs> see anybody in the middle of like, you can't take my rights away. And then right. the first group's like, if you think that's persecution, 
then right. you don't know your privilege is showing. Right. And I'm like just right. watching right. this thing unfold and I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh. And yeah. so it's just an interesting question to raise about um, persecution and comfort mm. Mm. and that um, the things we do find comfortable. I mean, if you think about it, for most of us, being in our homes is probably comfortable mm -hmm. um, if we're lucky. Uh, but it's like comforts of our own liberty that people don't like being uh, taken Curtailed. away. Yeah. That's right. So uh, I just that just struck me as like fascinating to watch it like unfold in real time. You know. I think that brings up a really good point. His his biggest target here, that kind of is woven through all the chapters, is he calls it individual expressionism. Mm. Right. It's the yeah. idea. And and it's even from our conversation, it's what sits behind the three forms of pride or the big me or the the therapeutic me or the activist me um, is is the the idea that I get to do what I want, have what I want, want what I want. And um, and my life gets built on that and about that and for that. Yeah. You know, which is which is obviously counter to Jesus's whole, you know take up your cross, you deny yourself and follow me sort of train of thought. Yeah. So that seems like that's the big, the big um, villain behind, you know, a lot of the, the disjunctions in the Beatitudes. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I totally agree with that. And I think he did. Um, and he said that today in his interview too, about like our best way past that is to realize there's somebody bigger and somebody more mm -hmm. and somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was a really nice, um, underlining thread and weave that he did through the, through the whole, through the whole book. So I yeah. appreciated that for sure. But, but you, you, but he did it at the cost of oversimplifying loads of things. Yeah. It's, it, it felt like that was one reaction. I was just like, yeah, yeah, I get that. And obviously, this isn't a book that's meant to address the deep, you know, realities and contours of the human soul and its ability to justify and rationalize, but also be traumatized. And, right. you know, so, so I don't know, there were a couple of points where I was just like, ah, I don't, I, the general point maybe, but I don't, I don't think it, it's that simple. But I would be comfortable giving it to somebody who, like you said at the beginning of the interview, this was their first introduction to the thing, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, hey, this is our starting point of conversation. And we always say that with our guests and with books and yeah. things like that. Like, all of these things should be an opening up. They should start totally. something, even if right. we shouldn't probably leave somewhere and be like, well, that was the, you know, said everything I needed to know about the topic. Right. So, um, I think like I had somebody on Instagram write me this week and say, I'd have known nothing about Christianity. Where would you point me? I ended up mm. pointing her to the Bible project because mm. they have some stuff that's super deep and then they have some stuff that is oversimplified. That's a great answer. Yeah. yeah so um, I don't know. I no, think you know, it just depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yep. 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 For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, Tim, what, what other, what other thoughts, reactions did you have? No, that was the big one that I was the um, I like the distinction for poor in spirit because um, I think that is a confusing thing to read when um, at least for me when I what I would think about that with like blessed is the poor it's this idea of, of those who don't who don't have anything right and they're struggling so this idea of poor in spirit seems different this idea of being just the way he kind of framed it and simplified it down of this idea of humility and being able to approach things with humility and humbleness and stuff, I think was, I appreciated, I, I was having a hard time not thinking of, um, that Foo Fighters music video though. Every time someone would say big meals, I could think of was Mentos. <laughs> of course. Tim I on fire. Wish, I wish that we had the, that it was, you know, that we had the rights to be able to play little snippets of music every now and then. Cause it would, I think it, it would be like the Tim up. internal soundtrack. I would be so Basically. good. Basically, that Sean should be just like every word that someone says. My brain triggers. It's like a jukebox. It's always going. <laughs> yeah. It's like a Shazam jukebox. So someone I says something, that. and immediately I have a song to sing. She's just like, you don't even know that you're walking around the house singing songs in reaction to everything, and I don't. And now yeah. Mazzy's starting to do it. <laughs> oh my goodness! There it is. 
I love it. All right, gang. Any final thoughts? I don't think so. All right. Love it. Sounds Um, good. Tim, I think we'd all vote for Tim's internal playlist as a Spotify playlist. Yes, mm-hmm. do it. Based on when so you're just, when you're editing, write down your things that come yes. up. Yes. So I'm ang- <laughs> so yeah, when I'm angry, here's my playlist. Here's Tim's anger playlist. You know, we should yeah. all do one. I've got some really good angry girl 90s music. Mm. Whoa, Liz Fair? Any Liz Fair? No. Oh. Like Alanis it's Morissette. like not yes. <laughs> and like some 90s pop and I also love a that's good some, that's a good poppy. Nelly uh hip hop. Oh boy! But it's old stuff. Okay. Nelly. Oh, who was I thinking of? I'm like a bird. I want to fly away. Is that oh, person's name that, Nelly? No. That's oh yeah, it was Nelly Furtado. Furtado. Oh, you're right. I was thinking of Natalie. It is a yeah, Nelly. But it's a different Nelly. I'm talking about Band Aid Nelly. Yeah, yeah. It's I, yeah, uh, I definitely had genre. Rage yeah. Against the Machine in my head, and then, you know, on a more sour note, mm. this last couple of days I've just had like the Smashing Pumpkin. I just had like. Despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage. Nice. Has felt has felt fairly prudent over, yeah. or fairly uh, uh, relevant over the last, I don't know, while. I yeah. know. Sometimes if I'm super emo, I'll go cranberries. Cranberries are great. I know. They are good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless us, everyone. All right, well... <laughs> friends there you have it (laughs) thanks for tuning in and as always uh, we hope that you stay safe and stay well and we'll talk to you next time